Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. This week on the Q&A podcast, on the eve of the Supreme Court's new term, a conversation about the life and legacy of Justice John Marshall Harlan of Kentucky with his biographer, Peter Canellos. Justice Harlan earned the nickname The Great Dissenter for his lone dissent in Plessy v. Ferguson, the 1896 Supreme Court case that upheld the constitutionality of racial segregation. Today, Justice Harlan and his dissents have become an inspiration to both conservative and liberal justices on the court, including Neil Gorsuch and the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. Peter Canellis, as the Supreme Court gets set to open up its new term, we're going to look back into judicial history with you on your new biography of Justice John Marshall Harlan. Why did you think that this 19th century justice deserved a second look by contemporary readers? Well, the way I would describe it is this. It's been uh, about 120 to 150 years since his tenure on the court, which ran from 1877 to 1911. And that's enough time for us uh, just to to understand that period, to understand what was significant, what wasn't significant during that period. That was the time when segregation started, which we now know was a disaster for the country and that we're continuing to grapple with its effects. We also know that that was the time of historically high income inequality, you know, an era where uh, some people were building mansions modeled on Louis XIV, while other people were living, you know, five and 10 in a room, working people who just couldn't afford any place to live. So uh, when we think about the excesses of that era, it's not the presidents or the Congress or other things that have shaped the times and shaped American history. It was the Supreme Court. And you have to ask, how did segregation come into being? Well, it's partly because the Supreme Court invalidated the Civil Rights Act of 1875. It's because they uh, refused to enforce voting rights, which were specifically in the Constitution after the after the Civil Rights after the Civil War, uh, and it's because they uh, they endorsed the legal architecture of segregation in the landmark case of Plessy v. Ferguson. And then you say, how did such terrible inequality exist? And it's because the Supreme Court declared the Sherman Antitrust Act unconstitutional. It declared the income tax unconstitutional. And in the case of Lochner v. New York, it said any laws to try to help labor are per se uh, unconstitutional. So when you go back to that period, you think, what is the common thread between all those cases? It's that John Marshall Harlan dissented in all of those cases. And in most of those cases, he was the sole dissenter. So you have to say, how is it that with everything we know now about what turned out well and what didn't turn out well from that period and what seems right and what seems wrong. This one person was right and all of his colleagues were wrong. And so you think, what are the roots of his difference? You know, what is it that gave him the confidence to stake out a very dramatically different view than his colleagues and then become vindicated over time. And so you get into this, this deep story about the roots of wisdom in the law, you know, what contributes to good judgment on the bench. And then you also can see how dissenting opinions, which have long been neglected in legal history, how dissenting opinions can then shape the next generation of the law and are actually worth having much more uh, uh, study and much more uh, significance these days. 
We're going to focus a little more deeply on those important dissents. But as I was getting ready for this uh, conversation, I found an article about a majority opinion that he wrote in 1905 that seemed particularly timely. This is a story from Business Insider about a case on vaccine mandates in 1905. Here's what they wrote. One particular case occurred in 1904. A Massachusetts town gave its citizens a choice take the smallpox vaccine or pay a $5 fine. Pastor Henning Jacobson refused to pay the fine, leading to a 7-2 Supreme Court decision in 1905 in favor of the state and validity of state-issued vaccine mandates. Associate Justice John Marshall Harlan wrote the majority opinion ruling that Jacobson's individual freedom, such as not taking the vaccine nor paying the required fine, do not give him a free pass to restrict the liberty of others by allowing the virus to spread. Quote, there are manifold restraints to which every person is necessarily subject for the common good, Harlan wrote. On any other basis, organized society could not exist with safety to its members. Society based on the rule that each one as a law unto himself, would soon be confronted with disorder and anarchy. What can we learn about John Marshall Harlan's view of the powers of the state and the individual from this? Well, you can learn a lot. Um, in that case reflected some of the sentiments that are in his, his dissents. Uh, one of them is that he believed in deference to uh, the democratic systems. Uh, he was a man who strongly believed in American, uh, except what we today call American exceptionalism. He believed that this experiment in self-government is sort of the greatest hope of mankind. He was, a, he was an ardent believer in democracy. And in his mind, that meant that the Congress and state legislatures needed to have enough power to really grapple with serious issues. Keep in mind, Harlan, as a young man, grew up in the shadow of the Civil War, this civil war was looming. It was a crisis that seemingly was uh, inexorable, that was like consuming his life and that of everybody around him. And he came to believe that people needed, you know, the country needed to be willing to grapple with problems and that legislatures needed to have enough power to really uh, deal with, uh, with these issues, including the federal government. So when he says uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, through its board of health, made a reasonable decision that uh, smallpox vaccine was necessary for all of its citizens. Uh, it was doing so to protect the liberty of the entire community. And that notion that he introduced in the Jacobson case, which is that there's a sense of competing liberties here. So uh, Henning Jacobson says, yes, it's my right to say no to this. I'm protecting my my own independence. Uh, he said that, you know, his his right to, to his liberty shouldn't shouldn't trump everybody else's liberty. Uh, and that's in a powerful notion for uh, today's debates, but it also is a, is a key to understanding Harlan's thinking. One of the fascinating things about John Marshall Harlan is that he seems to be lauded on both the left and the right in contemporary society. We have two clips to demonstrate that. Here's a Justice Neil Gorsuch talking about him in a September 10th, 2019 event. To me, you look at the 14th Amendment, um, it says equal protection of the laws, right? And I have over my fireplace in my office John Marshall Harlan, the first Justice Harlan. There were two. And he was the sole dissenter in Plessy versus Ferguson where he recognized that segregation is not consistent with the original meaning of the Constitution. He looks pretty dour. He looks pretty tired and haggard. 
And I don't doubt he was pretty unpopular back home in Kentucky, where he was from. But he knew that segregation is not equal protection of the laws. The the meaning of those words on the page, equal protection of laws, may be one of the most radical and important guarantees in our law and in all of human history. And I'm going to move right along to uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg talking about uh, dissenting opinions, and particularly John Marshall Harlan in 2017. There has been a tradition in the United States of dissents becoming the law of the land. We can go back to the worst decision the Supreme Court ever made. It was in the Dred Scott case. There was a fine dissent by Justice Curtis in that case. Or the first Justice John Marshall Harlan who dissented in the so-called civil rights cases in 1886 and in Plessy against Ferguson. So you're writing for a future age, uh, and your hope is that with time, the court will see it the way you do. So, Peter Canellis, what is it about this justice in this very partisan age in which we live that he seems to be... to transcend partisan positions? Well, it's two things. Uh, Today's conservatives have repudiated some of the views of the conservatives of Harlan's era uh, and say that their theory of interpretation of the Constitution is to examine very closely the original intent of the provisions in the Constitution and also to look at the plain text of the Constitution. So John Marshall Harlan most famously dissented in all of the cases that took away the rights of African-Americans because he knew that the post-Civil War amendments, which were added to the Constitution and ratified as a price of re-entry into the Union for the South and for the rest of the country ratifying it uh, under the normal process, that that was intended to preserve the rights of African-Americans. And when his colleagues, for reasons that were very... uh, uh, suspicious, uh, basically trying to keep peace with the South, when they began to retreat from that, as though it was the right of the Supreme Court to sort of say that this wasn't really in the Constitution and wasn't really what was intended, Harlan stood up strongly against that. So today's conservatives will say that was a very admirable defense of the plain language of the Constitution and the original intent of those post-Civil War amendments. People on the left We'll look at it very differently uh, and say that in Harlan's dissents and his opinions was a strong sense of justice for the individual, strong sense of justice, particularly for African-Americans and a sense of the terrible uh, trials that they had been put through and willingness to stand up for the beleaguered minority in this case and, and, and to stand up against public opinion also. So uh, liberals will say we need more justices who look at the higher principles of of true justice and who look at the effects of cases for the average person on the ground rather than some theoretical idea. Conservatives will look at this and say we don't like justices who kind of make it up as they're going along. Harlan was very rooted in the true original intent of the Constitution and in the text of the Constitution, and, and that's why conservatives admire him. So I think that liberals and conservatives actually can learn from each other on this. I think liberals can learn that 
there is value in uh, a strict uh, interpretation of the Constitution um, and, the, and the, the original intent of the Constitution. And I think the conservatives can learn that a, a, a deeper sense of justice, the sense of the uh, underlying principles of justice, uh, need, need accompany any Supreme Court. Let's take a look at the court that he was appointed to in 1877. What kinds of men were appointed to the court in that period of time? In that period of time, uh, the profession, the entire legal profession, had just been transformed. When John Marshall Harlan was born in 1833, lawyers were uh, were local figures. They would sort of hang a shingle. They would they would resolve disputes for their neighbors. They would go to court. They would write contracts. They'd write wills. They'd write documents. Um, in the meantime, in the next 20 years, uh, railroads took hold in the United States and completely transformed the American economy. It went from being almost purely a local economy to a national economy, the whole idea of a national economy developing because railroads would take products from the place of production to stores where they would be sold uh, on the commercial market. Um, Immediately, states began regulating railroads for a lot of good reasons, safety reasons, uh, monopolistic practices, uh, attempts to set prices, things like that. And this new class of lawyer was called upon by this new breed of wealthy American to defend the rights of the railroads and the economic trusts that built uh, themselves around the railroads. So suddenly there was this class of corporate attorney who was as rich as the richest moguls in business uh, and were sought after to fight what, what businessmen saw as the, as the vital, important fight in Congress and in state legislatures against uh, attempts to regulate these new business combinations. So these people became nationally famous lawyers. And after Lincoln, there was pretty much an unbroken strain of pro-business presidents for 36 years, all Republicans, and Grover Cleveland, who was known as a bourbon Democrat, which meant he was uh, sympathetic to Wall Street. And they all uh, appointed uh, men who were seen as being men of great distinction, but men whose background included amassing wealth in corporate law. Harlan was the great exception. And he was the great exception because he came about because of the disputed presidential election in 1876. Um, as we know, uh, Rutherford B. Hayes and Samuel Tilden uh, were the candidates in those uh, in that race, and three Southern states uh, had such such virulent disputes that they literally sent two uh, teams of electors to Washington, and it was left to the national government to figure out how to sort these things out. And there were good arguments on both sides. Uh, what happened, as we know, is that Hayes got the nod for the presidency, but there were a series of behind-the-scenes deals that were made to try to appease the South uh, where Tilden had had greater support. And one of those deals was adding a Southerner to the Supreme Court. So Rutherford Hayes comes into the presidency committed to fill an opening with, with a Southern justice. But he has a judiciary committee that's run by uh, Northern radical Republicans who are very supportive of civil rights. So he had to find somebody who was credible as a Southerner, but who also would support civil rights. Harlan uh, had uh, amassed a political debt to uh, to Hayes, but he was also a widely admired person, admired for his intelligence, admired for his thinking, admired for his, his knowledge of history and the law, and became a, a logical candidate. But he almost didn't get confirmed because he had grown up in a family that owned slaves. 
he had been slow to embrace the cause of abolition, which did not mean he was uh, strongly pro-slavery. He was a, he was a moderate who sought to forge compromises because he was from Kentucky and believed that Kentucky would bear the brunt of the battle if a war came. So he he following the lead of his great mentor Henry Clay, he he sought to bring about political compromises that would put slavery on a path to eventual extinction but would satisfy the economic needs of the South in the interim. Um, he later repudiated those positions after the Civil War. He came to believe that compromise uh, was not always effective. And that's how I think he gained some of his, his strength to take these principled stances. It came directly out of history that was painful to him. Uh, and then seeing the effects of it by fighting in the Civil War, which he did for three years. So if he was the youngest member of the court and came from such a very different background, what was their acceptance level amongst the fellow justices? Uh, The acceptance initially was pretty high because he was very committed early in his tenure to making a good impression and winning the respect of his older colleagues. Um, The court at that time was run by Chief Justice Morrison Waite. Uh, who was known for trying to build consensus among the justices. Uh, he was skeptic of dissent. He really believed that the court should try to work as, as much as possible as a unit. And Harlan embraced that. And partly because he was younger and because he respected some of his senior colleagues, um, he was quite willing to uh, play a subordinate role for the first six years on the court. And then a series of things happened that led to a very dramatic change in 1883. Well, let's dig into that, because that's the year that the court heard the civil rights cases. Uh, So what was at stake in the civil rights cases, his first major dissent? The civil rights cases was essentially a national requiem on what would be the verdict of the Civil War. Uh, Congress in 1875 had passed a Civil Rights Act that guaranteed that African-Americans would have access to inns, public transportation and places of entertainment. But around the country, there were individuals in all of those settings, you know, uh, train porters, uh, uh, conductors, um, you know, ticket takers at the theater who would, for openly racist reasons, refuse to serve African-Americans. So these cases began piling up of people claiming, African-Americans claiming that they'd been discriminated against. And they bundled them all together into one appeal to the Supreme Court. And... All of the country was watching, you know, in the South, especially this was considered a a vital requiem because segregation was starting to take hold. Individuals were saying we are not going to accept African-Americans on an equal basis. And they looked to the Supreme Court to find a way to vindicate their their position. Likewise, African-Americans knew that they would be excluded from economic life if they weren't able to stay in hotels, if they weren't able to go to restaurants, if they weren't able to ride a train, if they weren't able to go to the theater with their families. So it was an intensely important case, by far the most important case since Harlan had been on the court. Um, And the arguments before the court were intensely watched. You know, this is one of those things where the stands were packed. Every newspaper was running minute by minute coverage, seemingly uh, not minute by minute, but they had they had editions every hour uh, reporting on the on this coverage. So it's the biggest case around, and the court wants to be unanimous on this. So conservatives on the court came up with a theory that 
the post-Civil War amendments were only meant to restrain the action of state governments. So if a state government excluded African-Americans, had an ex a law that explicitly excluded African-Americans, that was unconstitutional. But if individuals, you know, the local baker, the innkeeper, the person who runs the train, the person who's taking tickets to the theater, if they discriminated against African-Americans, the federal government couldn't do anything about it. It was a state matter. But saying it's a state matter when you have a situation in the South that is rapidly heading towards segregation is like saying we're not going to do anything. And Harlan knew that these post-Civil War amendments were meant to change the Constitution. He also knew from his own experiences that these attempts to sort of pacify both sides and try to, you know, do whatever it's possible to avoid tension in the country didn't really work. Uh, he came out of the Civil War believing, after all this pain, all these painful experiences he'd gone through, that inequality was the original sin of the American system. You know, he was an arch believer in the American system, in self-government and democracy. This is the greatest hope of mankind. And yet we almost messed it up by allowing inequality under the law to take hold. And then he sees in the actions of the court that he is sitting on uh, an attempt to reinsert inequality into the law, or at least prevent the federal government from having the power to enforce the Constitution, which is what it had done in the Civil Rights Act of 1875. There are other things going on personally in his life. His eldest daughter died in childbirth that year or shortly after childbirth that year. And he wrote to his sons that he would spend the rest of his life every day trying to preserve her spirit. It happened that she had volunteered in a school uh, to teach the children of freedmen and was very committed to elevating African-Americans. It also is true that John Marshall Harlan grew up alongside a person, Robert Harlan, who was presumed at the time to be his half brother, who had risen to great heights of wealth as an African-American leader and became the leading black politician in Ohio and retained a personal relationship and alliance with John Marshall Harlan. So when you see, like he did through his own eyes, what a person who was born enslaved could achieve when their rights were protected as they were after the Civil War, uh, you can't fall back on the idea that, you know, well, freed people aren't really ready to take a full position in society, which is sort of the underlying theory of the case, I think, that some of the conservative justices believe. So Harlan broke with his colleagues in a powerful way and wrote a monumental dissent that not only had some of that sort of soaring sense of justice, his later dissent in Plessy v. Ferguson would have, which has made it a very memorable and important document in American history, but it also outlined different interpretations of the post-Civil War Supreme Court, different interpretations of the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, and his belief that because the economy had shifted into much more of a national economy, that Congress could enact civil rights under the powers that, that are granted to it to regulate interstate commerce, which was a radical idea at that time, but which in 1965 was became the basis for the Supreme Court approving a new Civil Rights Act. So. His dissent was powerful on many levels. Uh, it, it inspired great hope in the African-American community. Frederick Douglass wrote to him that it was the most, uh, the greatest opinion ever written uh, in the Supreme Court and that every American should read it. He was even more poetic than that. He was saying like, like autumn leaves, it should be spread around the country and fall upon every corner, every village, every town. Um, 
And and it also provided a roadmap to overturning the civil rights cases of 1883. So it, it turned out to be a hugely defining moment for Harlan, but also a defining moment for the United States. But you write about the fact that he struggled in writing the dissent. And we have a clip from a project we did, Landmark Cases, uh, back in 2018, with uh, jo- uh, Justice Harless- Harlan's great-great-granddaughter. Her name is Kate Dillingham. And she tells the, the story of uh, what inspired him in the, in the actual words that he wrote in his dissent. Let's watch. He received a gift from an unspecified woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Malvina maybe in her, in her envy or jealousy of his attentions, <laughs> thought this was rather an inappropriate gift, and she whisked it away and stuffed it in a closet, and uh, he never knew about it. Um, and when he became embroiled in his thought process about the civil rights cases, he was going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and spent three days in his study uh, not coming up with something that he was satisfied with. So she, in her brilliance, went and retrieved this inkwell that had belonged to Justice Taney, who, uh, as we know, (laughs) had a a different kind of legacy. Uh, She polished it up, placed it on his desk, fed him breakfast, and sent him back to work. And uh, upon seeing this inkwell, he, he realized what it was, and that gave him some motivation and perhaps some inspiration to to come up with what he did. Peter Canellis, you write in the book that this dissent changed John Marshall Harlan from a compliant fellow justice to a troubadour for civil rights. Why did it have that effect? Well, for one thing, it was such a high-profile case, and it was John Marshall Harlan speaking to the country about the importance of civil rights and the importance of equality under the law. Uh, once you do something like that, it, it marks you, you know, that's laying down a strong marker. It's him saying we must in this country enforce equality under the law. And my colleagues respectfully, you know, he, he liked his colleagues. He had good relationships with them personally, but he felt they were veering in a very dangerous way from, uh, the core principle of, of the law. The, uh, to explain a little about that clip. Justice Taney was the author of the Dred Scott opinion. For John Marshall Harlan, who was a patriotic, young politician, a believer in the American system, when the Dred Scott decision came down, in which Justice Taney wrote, not only that enslaved people had no rights under the Constitution, but no African-American, even free blacks, did not have any rights under the Constitution going against the constitutional history on that, uh, because at the time the Constitution was enacted, many states had equal rights for African-Americans. But Taney uh, issued this this incredible draconian opinion that just inflamed public sentiment in the North. And for Harlan, who, working with his father, James Harlan, who was a prominent attorney, working with Henry Clay in the past, had supported compromise as an alternative to war, it became clear in his mind that the Supreme Court was pushing the country to war. What that embedded in his mind is is the enormous stakes in these Supreme Court decisions and the tremendous cost to the country when the Supreme Court gets it wrong. So here he is in 1883, just 
25 years after the Dred Scott opinion, and he sees the court doing the same thing. And it must have been a sort of uh, horrific moment for him to, to sort of see history repeating itself. And that inkwell, the very inkwell that Tawney had used to write that obnoxious opinion in Harlan's mind, you know, to use the same, the same ink from the same well to write an opinion that said equal rights for all races should exist under the Constitution uh, felt to him sort of a, you know, sense of poetic justice. So we got a next bite at this important apple in 1896 with Plessy versus Ferguson. What's the shorthand understanding of that case? Well, what happened in that case was uh, the state of Louisiana passed a law that said uh, blacks and whites must uh, reside in separate carriages on trains that traveled within the state. And it set off uh, a, a very fierce re reaction in the African-American community, particularly among some wealthy Creoles who are people of mixed race who um, had long been, been a part of an upper class in Louisiana. And so they funded a challenge to the law. Somebody named Homer Plessy, who was only one-eighth black, uh, went into a, a white car and told the conductor that he was one-eighth black and then was kicked out. And that set up a case that ultimately went to the Supreme Court. But the principle was far, uh, far more significant than anything. The, the principle was that uh, lawyers had come up with this idea that you could satisfy the provision of the Constitution saying that uh, there must be equal protection under the law if you provided equal services, but in separate settings. Harlan uh, perceived it very, very differently. Uh, and he and he essentially called out the Supreme Court, all of his colleagues and the, and, the, and the country at large generally, for saying that nobody would be so wanting in candor as to say that the purpose of this was to separate whites and blacks for equal reasons. The purpose was to separate out black people. Uh, and he went through all of the myriad ways in which that uh, separation uh, was both unfair, discriminatory, and also, um, uh, you know, economically alienating for for uh, for African Americans. And even though this case did not have the same kind of uh, national attention that the civil rights cases had, because frankly, this, the the country had become so inured to the Supreme Court refusing to enforce black rights that there was never any question in people's minds that the Supreme Court would would go along with the challenge to this Louisiana law. Only Harlan would, would dissent. But his dissent had an unusual power. Um, he had by then been dissenting for 13 years in cases involving equal rights for African Americans. And he spoke with an unusually eloquent and powerful voice uh, about sort of the first principles that underline the law. It, his dissent included very a number of memorable phrases. Uh, the Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. There is no caste here. The humblest is the peer of the most powerful. And it's actually very unusual in a Supreme Court opinion, which often they tend to be very technical and referencing previous cases and things like that, to have somebody speak so powerfully about the underlying purpose in the law. You know, those are words that should be etched on the side of a building. Those are those that is a Supreme Court justice sort of digging deep into American history to say this is what this country is about. This is what this country was founded for. This is what this country fought a civil war for. This is what this country enacted in in post-Civil War amendments. And now the Supreme Court, with the complicity of the white community around the country, is is destroying its its core meaning. Um that was a great moment itself in American history because 
Harlan understood, which people generally did not understand at that time, that by giving the legal imprimatur of the Supreme Court to a system of separate but equal services meant that black people would, as long as that decision was allowed to stand, black people would be forced to live a separate life, that their entire existence would be essentially written out of America and segregated into a, a, a smaller community. It meant that black owned businesses wouldn't have access to white customers and that black people wouldn't have access to adequate transportation. Uh, it also meant in Harlan's mind that race would once again become the dominant source of tension in this country. And he wrote very eloquently in his dissent about his fears for the future. You know, he would say, what can more purely stimulate racial animus than a law that proceeds along the assumption that one race, black people, are so degraded that they have to be put in a separate railroad car? Um, so he predicted all of the pain that came afterwards, the years of segregation, the millions of lives that were circumscribed by that, and, and the fact that all of America, including the white community, still suffers from the horrible legacy of segregation and the legacy of Plessy v. Ferguson. He saw all of that at that moment. No one else did. <laughs> one person saw it. And, and that's why you have to go back and say, okay, why did he see it and the others didn't? And it's all of the things that we've been talking about. It's that they were corporate attorneys who were uh, intent on sort of keeping everything smooth in the country and, and not really in touch with the core principles of, uh, of the nation. It's because he saw war, he fought in the Civil War. It's because he saw the limits of compromise leading up to the Civil War. And it's because he knew Robert Harlan. Uh, he knew not just Robert Harlan, but he, knew, he grew up alongside Robert Harlan, but he also knew Frederick Douglass. He knew other people. He knew all these African-Americans who had succeeded spectacularly and who he counted as friends. Uh, and other justices just didn't have those experiences and didn't have that vision. And so all of those experiences combined with his core belief in America and in American institutions led him to be the sort of ultimate patriotic civil rights leader uh, and the sole civil rights defender in the among people in power in the white community in, in his era. Um, astonishingly, when Frederick Douglass died in the 1890s, only two white officials attended his funeral. This is Frederick Douglass, who before the Civil War was like the prime guest in homes in New York and in Boston. He was, you know, uh, abolitionists loved to have him there, to hear from him, to talk about the evils in the South, and they would they would fret over all of that. By the time he died in the 1890s, they had all neglected him and uh, abandoned him. His funeral is held in Washington, just steps away from uh, the center of power. The only two white officials who came were Senator John Sherman of Ohio, the brother of William Tecumseh Sherman, and the Sherman for whom the Sherman Antitrust Act was named, and John Marshall Harlan. That's an amazing turn of events, an amazing uh, thing. So towards the end of his life, Harlan was really uh, a man alone in taking these views. Um, I can go on and on, but I think the, uh, you know, that in many ways was the darkest period in Supreme Court history. And the fact that one justice instead of none stood up and said, this is disastrous, I think preserved faith in the law to many African-Americans. When Harlan died in 1911, we now know that there were spontaneous memorial services in African-American churches throughout the country. These are people who had no expectation that anyone, any white person would ever attend these services. Harlan himself had never visited these towns. 
But people came together because black people understood that there was one white person who was standing up for their rights. And they despaired over him. They prayed for his soul. They believed that he was the one great inspiration to them. There was one, uh, after having many of these services, there was one sort of congregate service at Metropolitan AME Church in Washington um, where people of many denominations came together, all black, and Harlan's dissents were read aloud at that service. So if you put yourself in the mind of a child attending that service, hearing about this great person, and then hearing those words, the Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. The humblest is the peer of the most powerful. There is no caste here. It was a source of inspiration. And we now know that Thurgood Marshall referred to Harlan's descent in Plessy as being his Bible. Uh, he, he was a lifelong Harlan admirer, uh, Constance Baker Motley. You know, they, they spoke movingly of the role that Harlan played and the fact that Harlan, in their opinion, was neglected in American history. So I, I think that his dissent in Plessy v. Ferguson, building upon his dissent in the civil rights cases of 1883 and in a lot of other race-related cases, was a, was a great statement, a statement of principle in the law, a statement that not everybody was going to abandon African Americans and that the nation could one day uh, live comfortably under a system in which equal protection under the law was real and was enforced. One complicating f factor in this legacy, this is also the era of the Chinese exclusion laws. And uh, it, it seems, in your telling of the tale and from reading about him, that he did not extend the same sense of equality to Chinese immigrants in this country. Can you explain that aspect and, and how it squares with his view of equality? Well, I think that, yes, I think that what the way that it squares with his view of equality is that he believed in equality under the U.S. Constitution. The Chinese cases came about because of a treaty with China, which allowed Chinese workers to come to the United States um, to work, but remained subject to the Chinese emperor. So they were subject to the laws of the United States under this treaty, but they were not American citizens. So if you believe that the Constitution says equal protection under the law, um, that applies to, to the citizens of the United States, and it applies in terms of the administration of laws in the United States. Um, but in his mind, Chinese who had remained loyal to the Chinese emperor and were here under a, a treaty um, had a different, a different status. Nonetheless, none of the cases that came before the Supreme Court involving um, Chinese workers ever raised an equal protection claim. So we don't even know Harlan's views on, on how equal protection would apply to Chinese. We do know that there was a terrible case where a white gang chased a group of Chinese people into uh, a river in California and some people, were, people died and there was an attempt to uh, prosecute the white gang under a civil rights law and uh, the majority of the Supreme Court uh, de declared that, that was not appropriate. And Harlan wrote a strong dissent defending uh, the use of the civil rights statute to protect the uh, uh, Chinese community. He also, however, joined a nine to nothing opinion. That's all unanimous court that was written by a different justice, Stephen Field, uh, that, that served to validate the Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, this was not a good opinion because Justice Fields, who was from California, included a lot of, uh, frankly, you know, racist stuff about how Chinese couldn't assimilate properly with uh, Europeans, et cetera, et cetera. Nonetheless, the legal issue in that case 
was pretty simple. It was simply, does the U.S. Constitution or the U.S. Congress having um, approved a treaty that would allow these Chinese workers into the country, could they then uh, change their mind and say, we're now uh, abrogating the treaty and Chinese cannot enter the country? I think that then and now, everybody agrees under the law that Congress needs to have that power. So the holding of the case, called the Che Chan Ping case, is still valid today. Uh, but Harlan joined a nine-to-nothing opinion that ha- happened to be written by Justice Field, and Justice Field put some very objectionable stuff in that opinion. There was another case where one of the children, somebody who had been a child, a baby in this country, of one of those workers, years later, tried to assert uh, birthright citizenship from having been born on American soil. And Harlan actually joined a dissenting opinion by Chief Justice Fuller that said that um, since none of the uh, uh, Chinese um, workers intended to become citizens or were on a path to citizenship, the mere fact that the child was born in the United States should not make the child a a U.S. citizen. that was not a generous reading either. So my my conclusion out of all of this evidence, when you also have to figure in that Harlan was the strongest defender of full constitutional rights for people in Hawaii and the Philippines when the United States was controlling Hawaii and the Philippines. There's a whole line of cases called the Insular Cases in the first decade of the 20th century where the Supreme Court uh, allowed these people who were living under the power of the U.S. Constitution to uh, to nonetheless have their rights taken away by various acts of Congress. Harlan stood up and said, no, the Constitution follows the flag, that wherever the United States is in power, the Constitution is the sovereign and constitutional standards needed to apply. That goes for Hawaiians, that goes for Filipinos. He was, he was the strongest defender of Asians' rights during that time. So when you put all this stuff together, you say, well, was he an anti-Chinese racist? Was he somebody who just had a you know, animus towards the Chinese that he didn't have towards African-Americans. I don't think that was the case. I think it was part of his sense of American exceptionalism that he always had a skepticism of people who lived under totalitarian regimes, lived under monarchies, and whether they were truly committed to self-government. I think this was a, a flaw in his thinking. I think it was part of his, you know, celebration of Americans who who practiced this wonderful form of self-government and, and skepticism that immigrants could easily accommodate themselves to it. I think it went too far. So I think that, you know, the people who criticize his positions in the Chinese cases are sort of on to something that was uh, less friendly to immigrants and to people who, who came from totalitarian governments than it is to indigenous minorities like African-Americans who were born under the U.S. Constitution, like Native Americans. There was a case where a Native American renounced his citizenship in the tribe and uh, asserted that his, his, his citizenship as a, as a U.S. citizen living in an American city. And the Supreme Court said no, because he was part of an, an Indian nation, he couldn't become a citizen. Harlan gave a very passionate, strong dissent defending the rights of Native Americans. So, um, Given that he was the number one defender of Native American rights and extraordinary defender of African American rights and a defender of Hawaiians and Filipinos, you say, well, oh, well, why wasn't he doing the same thing for the Chinese? And the answer is that the cases came in under a very different flag uh, because they were the result of this one treaty that allowed workers to come to the United States. Um, but I think also because he had some degree of innate skepticism about uh, people who immigrants who came from uh, from living under monarchies uh, 
Uh, and, and he had at various times expressed rhetorically skepticism about British subjects coming in uh, loyal to the king, you know, where they, he once posited in a lecture, uh, you know, if a British couple comes down to Hot Springs for a vacation and happens to have a child here, but has no intention of becoming American citizens, you know, should that child be immediately granted American citizenship? He was skeptical of that. He had very early in his life expressed some skepticism about whether Catholics with their doctrine of papal infallibility whether the doctrine of papal infallibility was was compatible with democracy. Um, I think these were things that he wrestled with. Uh, and by the end of his life, he, he repudiated a lot of those views and had changed. Um, but there was a strain in his thinking that was skeptical of, of foreigners who grew up under monarchy. So we have about 15 minutes left, um, and uh, I, I will perhaps pass on the discussion of the Lochner case, because you made reference to the that era and the Gilded Age and the support the Supreme Court really gave to the economic inequality in the country. Spend a little bit more time on, on the personal side of it. When you, um, you've referenced several times the influence that Robert Harlan had on John Marshall Harlan, his ha- it, it treated as if a half-brother and he was half black. And in your uh, afterwards of the book, the epilogue, you say that there was actually a DNA test done that wasn't able to scientifically prove any genetic connection between the two. The book almost reads like a dual biography of the two men because their lives were so intertwined. In the end, what did you come away thinking about that relationship and how it was able to foster uh, such strong ties in that period of time? Well, it, it, I think the relationship is fascinating and it shows several things. One is that um, sometimes human relationships and interactions can transcend what would be expected based on people's situations. Robert Harlan was significantly older than John Marshall Harlan, born in Virginia when James Harlan, who was sort of the family patriarch, was only 16 years old, but he was born in a place where the uh, the Harlan family, James Harlan's mother's uh, relatives lived. So the speculation at the time was that James Harlan at 16 had had some sort of a sexual uh, initiation that involved an enslaved woman and that Robert was the product of that um, of that liaison, that relationship. Um, we know that when Robert was eight years old, he and his mother journeyed 450 miles through the wilderness to get to Harlan Station. And it was reported because Robert Harlan became a famous man later in his life, reported in these newspaper profiles of him in his lifetime, uh, that he had come with his mother to find his father. Well, if you're going to Harlan Station, which is essentially a family town, everybody in Harlan Station was a Harlan family member. They obviously believed that his father was a member of the Harlan family. We also know that James Harlan, who was then only 24 and newly married and starting to have children with his wife, uh, immediately purchased young Robert Harlan and took a very strong special interest in him, tried to get him educated. And and just it was not the typical relationship between uh, a a master and an enslaved man. It was uh, more of a familial relationship. This by accounts that were written in newspapers in Robert Harlan's lifetime and presumably that Robert Harlan contributed to. Um, His mother ended up sold down south and nobody, there's no real clear way of determining how that transaction happened and who was the, who was the person who was the actual owner and how that, how that happened. So Robert Harlan always described himself as being raised by James Harlan. 
one of the things that's interesting about that is that James Harlan was a very forbidding father figure to his sons with his wife, including John Harlan. Uh, he was an authority figure that was almost unknowable. You know, when the boys were young, they were all committed to a, a course of study that was designed to, to lead to the law because James Harlan was the leading lawyer in Kentucky at that time and, and envisioned his sons all as lawyers. And as we know, he also tried to get Robert educated, but the courts, the schools wouldn't take him because he was African-American. Paradoxically, that liberated Robert Harlan in one way, which was he didn't have to follow that sort of prescribed path of his father. He was able to find opportunities, find places where African-Americans could succeed in this incredibly restrictive legal landscape in which most African-Americans were enslaved. The first example of that was horse racing. When Robert was just a teenager, he began to become very active in what was then the nascent sport of horse racing, where you'd go town to town in, in Kentucky and stage races. And he gradually became famous for his ability to, shape, to, to determine the success or failure of a horse just by looking at it, by looking at the, the physical makeup of the horse. Um, African-Americans could participate in horse racing because a lot of the original horse owners were uh, slave owners and they had their enslaved men serve as trainers and jockeys. So it was often described as like a checkerboard at these racing scenes where half of the people were black, half of the people were white. So Robert sensed that as a sort of quasi free man, because he was given all these privileges by, by, by James Harlan, uh, he, he was able to go and, and, and make money uh, uh, sizing up horses, staging races and things like that. So if you're the young John Marshall Harlan as a little boy watching Robert come home, Robert, by all accounts, a dashing figure, handsome, a leather pouch under his arm, you know, revolver in his belt, full of money from these horse races. And you're committed to this this sort of cloistered study. You, you look at Robert Harlan as a sort of charismatic uncle kind of kind of figure. I think that it also seemed to be clear that. Robert had a different relationship with James Harlan, the father, that was a little bit more personal than some of the other children in the family had. So could it be that the person who was enslaved in the house had actually more contact and FaceTime with the family patriarch than the other children in the house? It doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of sense. You assume there's going to be a lot of discrimination in this setting, and maybe there was, but the evidence seems to suggest otherwise. Robert Harlan then continuing that pattern of finding opportunities for African-Americans, he heard about the gold rush in 1849 and immediately perceived that this is a place where uh, racial divisions would not have taken hold in San Francisco. People were coming from all around the world to try to find gold in California. He made this sort of perilous journey through Panama to the West Coast and up through some very dangerous boating straits to get, get to San Francisco and came back uh, with the equivalent of four or five million dollars in today's money. But at that time, it was worth even more because the economy was different and having, having cash meant even more. And so he then moved to Cincinnati across the river from Kentucky, which was then the terminus of the Underground Railroad with African-Americans coming out of slavery into Cincinnati and began investing in black owned businesses. He perceived that photography was one area, that new technology was an area where free blacks could make an impact because, again, there weren't those sort of racist structures in place. You didn't have to 
have some white man hire you to be successful in photography. So he, he became a photography entrepreneur, mostly as an investor. He invested in a, a famous hostelry called the Dumas House in Cincinnati, uh, which was both the most fashionable hotel for free black people, but in the back, especially in later years when the Fugitive Slave Act was enforced, they, they hid runaways in the back of Dumas House, and he held the mortgage on the Dumas House. So he became sort of the leading black citizen of Cincinnati. Then he moves to Europe, buying horses, American horses, going to Europe, and decided to stage races in in Europe that would have a transatlantic competition, try to show that American horses were every bit as competitive as British horses. And he became something of an international celebrity, written about constantly in Europe, traveling everywhere. He came back to the United States after the Civil War, when black rights were protected and became the leading black politician in Ohio, which was then the key state in the country because it was the swing state in presidential politics. So that gave Robert Harlan, position of power in terms of an actual personal relationship with people like Ulysses S. Grant, uh, Rutherford Hayes, who had been the governor of Ohio, Garfield, uh, McKinley, you know, know, all of these people knew Robert Harlan. And it was from that perch that he helped John Marshall Harlan, helped validate the fact that John Marshall Harlan's views on civil rights were supportive of African-Americans at a time when people were doubting it. People were saying John Marshall Harlan had supported all these compromises before the Civil War. He was slow to support the post-war amendments, uh, frequently uh, as attorney general of of, uh, Kentucky during the Civil War, had disputes with the federal government. Uh, And yet here was somebody who grew up in the same house as John Marshall Harlan, who was African-American, saying he's a supporter of of civil rights. And the two worked together politically uh, in the 1870s. Uh, Robert Harlan also maintained a relationship with other uh, members of the Harlan family that he had grown up with. So, and, and you know, there were many instances where he, he protected and, and sought to protect John Marshall Harlan from political reversals and, and uh, embarrassments. So you come out of this saying, well, um, there was a lot of respect on both sides. John Marshall Harlan clearly understood that Robert Harlan was an extraordinary figure. Robert Harlan truly understood and saw something that he believed in in John Marshall Harlan. So when you look, you know, in future years and say, how did John Marshall Harlan become the sole dissenter, the lone dissenter, and all those cases that took away black rights, you you believe that he had to have some image of Robert Harlan there uh, in his mind. And Robert Harlan was playing a significant role in backing John Marshall Harlan. And then uh, in sort of a, a sad coda, when you talk about the book being sort of a dual biography, Robert Harlan's own dreams for the United States, which were powerful. I mean, he was a politician. He was quoted everywhere. He played a role in setting the national agenda for African-Americans. He gave a speech in Cincinnati that was widely applauded where he said, you know, in one generation, African-Americans can achieve equality by education, you know, standing fully alongside the sons and daughters of white families. And Robert Harlan did that with his own son. Robert Harlan had only a half day's education in his own life. His son went to college and law school and became a very erudite man. But then segregation hit. And Robert Harlan's family continued to be, uh, you know, elites in the, within the black community. And yet, economically, they became strangled through four or five generations. So it's a sort of sad coda to this story that all of the cases that John Marshall Harlan fought against on, on the Supreme Court led to a condition of segregation that destroyed all the hopes of Robert Harlan. And uh, it's the two stories are deeply intertwined. And 
a really kind of uh, uh, you know important lesson in the impo- in in the role that personal experience plays in the law. We have about three minutes left. Um, one last item. Every summer, our book TV group goes to politicians on Capitol Hill and asks what they're reading this summer. Here was Senator Mitch McConnell's answer to that question. The sole dissent in Plessy versus Ferguson was this, that segregation on rail cars was constitutionally impermissible under the newly passed amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Sole dissent. It reads like the majority unanimous decision in Brown versus Board of Education 58 years later. That's why John Marshall Harlan's photograph is on my wall. And I was thrilled a few months ago to see that this new book had come out about his life and times. And it's a marvelous read, extremely well written. I highly recommend it to your viewers. Peter Canellis, before we started taping, you told me you, <clears throat> you went to Capitol Hill yesterday and you talked to Mitch McConnell about the book. Uh, in our last couple minutes, what was that conversation like? Uh, it was a wonderful conversation. I mean, uh, Senator McConnell has a, a deep sense of history and a deep sense of loyalty to, to Kentucky. Uh, and I think he was truly um, uh, inspired by Harlan's story and the story of Robert Harlan as well. We talked about Robert Harlan as well. Uh, and this, you know, underscores what we were talking about a little bit earlier, that uh, John Marshall Harlan has tremendous support and respect a- across the aisle. Uh, you know, Senator McConnell has been uh, very supportive of this book. George F. Will wrote a column celebrating Harlan and the book. Um, many people, uh, many conservatives have embraced it. At the same time, this past weekend, I was in Chattanooga for the dedication of a memorial uh, to a lynching victim that Harlan had attempted to save uh, and really stuck his neck out to, to call out uh, racist procedures in the South. And Judge Curtis Collier, the senior African-American judge in on the federal court of Tennessee, is also an arch Harlan admirer. And he and many of the other African-American leaders of Chattanooga paid tribute to Harlan and talked about Harlan's unique role in promoting equal justice under the law. Uh, there's a scholar in Texas, Josh Blackman, who wanted to create a study center that was nonpartisan and name it after a famous figure in the law of Supreme Court justice. And he said that everybody went back and forth on all these Supreme Court justices and nobody right and left could really uh, agree on anybody until they came up with only two names that they could name for the study center. One was uh, Robert Jackson, who had been prosecutor at Nuremberg and famous for his role in the Nuremberg case. Uh, and the other was John Marshall Harlan. Uh, of the many extraordinary things about Harlan's legacy today, uh, we've talked about the vaccine case, we've talked about African-American cases, we've talked about the Gilded Age economic uh, cases. The fact that he's equally admired on left and right is, is another credit to his unique position in our society. The book is called The Great Dissenter, the story of John Marshall Harlan, America's judicial hero. Peter Canellis, thank you very much for telling us more about this justice and his legacy. Thank you. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome.